Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn? And when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Designer, entrepreneur, director, YouTuber, teacher. All of these words can describe my guest, but teacher is the one he says fits best at this point in his life. Christo is an Emmy Award-winning designer and director. He's also the CEO and chief strategist of Blind, a brand strategy design consultancy. He's also the founder of The Future, an online education platform with a big mission of teaching over a billion people how to make a living doing what they love without losing their soul in the process. Over the years, Chris has developed legions of followers across social media platforms, and for good reason. He's not afraid to speak his mind, even when it may not be popular. In this interview, we talk about how being a middle child to immigrant parents played an influential role in who he's become. He also shares his insights on feedback and rejection and how his own life would be different if he didn't face rejection. We also talk about how he's been able to help his company survive for over 20 years, despite all the changes we've seen in the digital world. It was an honor to sit down with Chris, and I can't wait to dive right in. So let's jump straight in to the conversation. Chris Doe, thanks for being on Inside Out. It's my pleasure, Billy. I'm excited to dive in. And so let's start with this. Why is the date April 30th, 1975 so significant to you? Oh, you've done the homework, huh? (laughs) Oh man, I don't know. I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) Yes, you have. It's the fall of Saigon, the last days of Saigon. And that's when the communists had pushed through and America had decided to pull out. And so there's this 24-hour window for democratic Republican Vietnamese to flee the country. And that's when my parents got out of the country. What do you think that decision to flee the country? I mean, obviously it's had a tremendous impact on your whole life, but what are some of the biggest things that stand out as why that made such an impact on who you are today? Sure. Well, I want to consider the alternate universe, the multiverse, if you will, because I think about this sometimes when, because we know people who stayed behind 
consciously stayed behind or just couldn't escape and their life is totally different. And I think like, what would have happened to me? My education, my path, my exposure, my ability to do what it is that I'm doing today would be dramatically different. It would be completely different, right? And so when we escaped Vietnam and came to the United States, it was like everything is new now, new language, new culture, new customs. Everything is so different. And this is just my beginning into the world. If you think about it, like my parents are living in the lowest low income neighborhoods and, and they didn't know anything about race and racism and what was going on in America at that time. So this is 1975. And my, my parents tell me the story. We landed in Kansas City, Missouri, and they were just like walking around the neighborhood. And there was an older black gentleman who came up to them like, ma'am, sir, you do not want to walk down this street. And they're like, we don't understand. You know, when you come from an ethnocentric community society where everybody looks and sounds like you, you're not quite sure what's going on. And there's so many different things that have happened to them that then becomes part of their imprint, their DNA. This traumatic event then transfers over to us. So there are certain habits and ideas and beliefs that I still have today that sometimes I stop to think, right, that's because we were refugees. For one thing is like, I hate to waste. For example, mm. if if my son doesn't eat something, even if I'm not hungry, I'm going to eat it. Because my parents told me before, it's like, we cannot waste anything because we don't know what we're going to have tomorrow. And so that starts to build into my mindset, like to be very resourceful. It's one of our core values to do more with less. Mm -hmm. That's why I try to be as resourceful as I can be. But that's just one thing. But the biggest thing that's influenced my thinking is the immense amount of gratitude that I have for this country and an opportunity to start over. And I look at what's happening with immigration these days and kids stuck at the border. I'm not saying that we should not have immigration laws, but there are a lot of people escaping all kinds of things, you know, horrific things. And for one reason or the other, their class isn't considered worthy of having asylum in the United States. So this was a time when America was open. We were all refugees escaping communism. We fought the war together. And so the country opened its doors. Maybe not 100% its heart, but it opened its doors and allowed us to get a fresh start. And I'm forever grateful for that. Wow. That's my best friend is, is mom met his dad in Vietnam. And his dad was a soldier. His mom's from Vietnam. But you've just the resourcefulness. And actually, he helped produce my film. And, you know, as you know, being in production and making things, there can be a lot of waste. There could be a lot of carelessness. And one of the things that stands out about him is his ability to make sure that we are resourceful. So I love that insight. I want to talk a little bit about the two most influential people in your lives, in your life, which is your mom and your dad. You describe them as having courage and selflessness and positivity, pragmatism, and their ingenuity inspires you. Their determination inspires you. So I'm curious, what are the biggest lessons that you learned from them that stand out right now? I've learned so much from them, but I've also learned that this is an operating system created from a different time and place. And so I'm one who's rooted in my past, but not restricted by it. And I've always felt this way, that I've had my foot and body, my heart, my soul, my mind planted in two different places, one from my Vietnamese culture and one from the American culture. And I always tried right. to figure out like, hey, this is a wonderful thing. It's like kind of like an idea buffet. You get to pick and choose the best parts and you don't have to hold on to the parts that you don't love. And I think that's a beauty, whether you're an immigrant or if you're a native born or anything like that. You get to choose parts, parts from your past, parts from your present, and hopefully parts from your future. So for my dad comes a really strong work ethic, this idea that you need to delay your gratification. 
and just to put in the work today. So hard work comes from him. His ingenuity, like I hear the tales of the things that my father's done. He did not get uh, a college education here in the United States. And he worked his way up from being a busboy at a restaurant, not being able to speak English, to ultimately retiring as the chief engineer at a semiconductor company in Silicon Valley. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and this was kind of like, it's really remarkable. So my dad wakes up before the sun comes up and he goes home after the sun comes down. And I don't know this, but he's also going to night school and reading, going through manuals and constantly getting training. My dad's a really brilliant person. There's like, we call him Mr. Fix-It at the house because if there's a problem with electrical, with plumbing, anything, he will get in there and he will figure it out. And I've learned about how he breaks things down. Like I remember when, when I was in grade school, one of my friends at school loaned me one of these electronic games. Like back then, a video game was like red dots moving across a screen. They call <laughs> totally. that football, right? And it made like bleeping sounds. And that's, that's what you had. Yeah. I come home with yeah. it. My dad's like, what are you doing? I said, oh, my friend, let me borrow this. Because it's not good to borrow things from other people. And you know what happened? The game broke. The thing broke. And it's like, I didn't break it, but it broke. And my dad's like, see, this is why we don't borrow things. And so I'm like, dad, help me out. I was like, going to have tears in my eyes because now I have to like, I feel like I have to replace the guy's game. I'm the guy who had it last. So my dad opens it up and we sit down there at the table. He breaks it apart. He's like using his electronic equipment, measuring whatever it is, an O-meter, just checking it out. And he's like, oh, there's a loose thing right here. He solders it back in, closes back up, turns on the game and works again. And he's like, whew, lesson learned. Lesson learned. And one of the things my dad told me about, and to give a little context here, he's the oldest male of like 10 brothers and sisters. And his father passed away when he was still a teenager. My uncles tell me this, his younger brothers, right? He's like, everybody is crying their eyes out, but your dad didn't cry a single tear. And he wanted to, but yeah, because he had to be the man of the house at that point. He took on the responsibility. So my dad sucked in the tears and the next oldest sibling, he was bawling. And to this day, I can see that their personalities are totally different. My dad had to assume the mantle of man of the house because his father died and his younger brother's we're all emotional. They're totally different people. My dad is somewhat of a robot. He's very logical. He's very pragmatic. And he's repressed these emotions. He buried it. And I never saw him cry until the day my grandmother died. Mm. And he broke down. And it was just, I think he held on to that pain for so long. Isn't it interesting how birth order has such a role in who we are? And I'm curious, as a middle child, how do you think being in between two people made you who you are? What differences did it make in your own life? Yeah, it is wild to think that we have free will and we're self-determined. But then so much of that self-determination is like, no, you're the middle child and you behave exactly (laughs) like middle children do. It's nurture and nature, right? And as a middle child, it's the classic stuff. You're the invisible child. You disappear. And my older brother gets the attention and and he's genetically very different than me, even though we have the same parents. And my younger brother got all the affection and that left me trying to figure out my way. And so I adopted the caretaker personality, which is very common. I don't know any of this. I only find out about it through my therapist 40 years later. You know, and then she tells me like, oh, this is what's going on. I'm like, oh, shoot, I don't think that, but okay. Then she makes me realize I'm a caretaker. And it's one of the reasons why I have a lot of issues with confrontation. So even as I'm the owner and CEO of my own company, certain passive aggressive people knew certain things about me and were able to push me. They were like, I'm going on a sales trip. or I'm going to go do this. Or I just purchased this this thing that you don't want me to. (laughs) Daring me to like do something about it. And I had to go see a therapist to say, like, why am I biting my tongue? Is it 
And she said, because you care about their feelings and you're not taking good care of yourself. And she told me this thing. She said, there's an intellectual mind and then there's a, like an emotional mind, right? She says, mm-hmm. intellectually, you're like, I want to do this. And your body, your emotion is telling you, no, you know what? You need to take care of Chris. If you don't listen to me, first, I'm going to make you feel bad. Then I'm going to really hurt you. And she says, your body will respond one way or the other. And that's what leads to like ulcers and all kinds of other things. Mm. Well, look, I mean, it's better late than never that you figure this stuff out. I'm curious, do you think it plays into your competitive spirit? Do you think it plays into, frankly, wanting to have more validation in life? Do you think that also plays into it? I'm not sure. I wouldn't chalk that up. I am a super competitive person, but I don't think this caretaker personality is a direct causal relationship to being competitive. One thing I did learn about being the middle child I was listening to a radio program about the disappearance of the middle child is that middle children wind up becoming very self-reliant. So nobody's looking after you. Like I remember distinctly like feeling super sad. Like one time my mom forgot my birthday and another time when there was a dinner party and I was just sitting there like I haven't eaten all day long. (laughs) And then my mom finally sees me and then she's like, honey, have you eaten? I'm like, no. And then I'm just like crying, you know, I'm like, okay, I guess I could have gotten up and gotten my own food. But it just felt like, hey, where's mom and all this? And so just you, you disappear. So you have to kind of start to rely on yourself. And I think that's very much true. And that coupled with the time and space in America where we're like, we're latchkey kids. Both parents yep. are working. We come home from school off the school bus and then we don't know what to do. And so then you start to kind of explore who are you? What are your thoughts? And I think I attribute a lot of this to being more mindful and and having a more meditative state because I often sat there and just thought like, what am I thinking about right now? And why do I have these feelings? Why am I sad? Why am I happy? What's motivating me to do this? And, and having that inner dialogue. Do you feel overall your childhood, you were happy? Do you, or do you not feel that? It's a good question. I think I have mostly happy memories, but I was telling my wife, like I have an Apple HomePod, right? And it plays random songs from the playlist. And there happened to be a lot of Christmas songs there for whatever reason. And every time one of those sad, jazzy kind of Christmas songs comes on, I get emotional and I feel that. And I tell my wife, like, I get emotional over this stuff. And she goes, why? It's because each one of these songs triggers a memory of my childhood. And it was one of these things where I always felt as a child that this is going to sound like very immature. I never got what I wanted because either my parents didn't have the money or they weren't in tune with what like I want it. And I joke about it. And my mom laughs with me today, but it's like, I asked for that laser gun and said, I got this car and I asked for this Star Wars action right. figure. And I got, I got a teddy bear. I'm like, there's just a total misalignment. And this drive and this desire to achieve comes from this childhood of wanting things that I never got and not having, not having a lot of money and resources in the house. You have to get really inventive. So I started thinking, what do I need to do to make my own way in the world? I want to be control of my own destiny. And I remember as a child, like I tried to run away twice. I've had all the dark thoughts that all teenagers have about escaping, suicide, everything. So overall, I would say it was a really happy childhood. But there are moments in there where I just felt really isolated, alienated, like I don't belong to anyone in anywhere. Mm. It was definitely those feelings. Right. Okay. So we're going to move beyond childhood in a moment. And I just want to ask one more question and then we'll go into kind of later childhood when you really found design as a 17 year old. And maybe this will be the answer to your question, but what is the most transformational moment that you can recall from childhood that stands out right now? In terms of like leading me to design or just period? I think just period. And then we'll go into the design. 
All right. I have a pretty clear timeline in my mind, like markers and milestones, and, and there's a turning point in my life. And I think I'm 17 or 18, so it's not really a childhood, but it's still like a formative right. moment. I'm in community college. I'm having this horrible relationship with a super toxic girlfriend that I fell in love with, but it was just clear to me it wasn't working, but I was holding on so tight. It was also a time in which I was like growing very distant and angry at my older brother. I was living with him and his girlfriend, and it was not a happy situation at all. It started out nice, and it, it just quickly devolved. And then finally, the straw that broke with the camel's back was when my mom had said to me, you know what, maybe going to private art school is not for you. Just go to state university, go to San Jose State. And those things seemed to coalesque in, in one moment and one night where I was breaking up. I just had an argument with my brother and my mom calls me. We're having this conversation and I was thinking, mom to the rescue. And I was telling my mom, mom, I hate my brother. Things are terrible <laughs> here. And thinking my mom's like, oh, poor baby, everything's going to be okay. Let me see what I can do. Let me talk to him. Instead, she's like, you know what? Let's go home. Let's. To me, she was saying like, give up on the dream. And that night I, I, I cried. I hung up the phone and and I just cried my eyes out until there's like nothing left. And I started to have this outer body experience. I started to float away from my own body because I was laying there on the floor next to the futon and just thinking like, what is my life? Like, I'm just completely worthless and there's nothing left for me here. And I started to go down those dark thoughts where it's like, this is a life not worth living. Nobody believes in me. My brother hates me. My girlfriend is like lying to me. Things are just really, really bad. And then I snapped back and I was thinking, you know what? We're going to prove each and every single person who's doubted us wrong. Mm. So it was kind of like, if you can cue the music, like 80s montage, I have the tiger kind of thing. In my mind, at least that night was right. transformative. And by the morning, I woke up and I was a whole different person. I said, I'm tired of you. I'm talking to myself here. I'm tired of you kind of wallowing in your self-pity, not following through on your actions, the commitments that you've made, you've broken. You're going to need to prove now to everybody that's ever doubted you that this is what you're meant to do. And no matter what it takes, I'm going to put myself through college if I have to like work part time, take semesters off. I'll do whatever it is I need to do to get into school. And then my life begins to change. So I tell people this story and I tell them that's the night that the child dies and the man is born and a switch had been flipped. And that's that's a very formative moment. Well, the resolve that you had from that point on was undeniable and clearly led to what happened going forward. One of the things I'm fascinated by is this idea of rejection or failure, perceived rejection or perceived failure, and how it ultimately, in some cases, could be the best thing that ever happens to us. I want to talk about UCLA because what would happen if you went to UCLA and didn't go to design school? What would How would your life be different today? It's kind of hard to fathom, I have to say, but UCLA does have a really good design program. I did apply to it. I know people and I've hired people from the UCLA design program. It's just not as concentrated as a private art school like Art Center. I don't know. My life would be dramatically different. It really would. I mean, they're very smart people at UCLA. Maybe I would have found film and directing because they have a very good film department there. And I don't know. And the campus, as you can imagine, like is like 50 times bigger than Art Center. Right, you know, right, Art Center right. is like 1,200 students, something like that. Well, I... Uh, I I also didn't get into to UCLA, so and I ended up going to Loyola and study film. So okay. you just never know what happens, right? 
I'm curious though. I want to talk about some people that mean something to you. Let's talk okay. about your philosophy 101 teacher from De Anza. Sure. Why is that a person that you mention in your book dedication? Yeah, you know, so I've been trying to figure out who this professor is. I've been reaching out. I just like, well, it is, it's going to be on this list that I have to scratch off, right? So I get into Art Center and I delay entrance by one semester. Because the acceptance, like they accepted me like two weeks before school started. It was not enough time for me to like scramble and get things together. So I said, hey, yeah, great. Go to community college. I pick up some extra credits. It'll save me from spending that at Art Center. I take philosophy 101. And my instructor, he taught in the most brilliant ways. Like I've had some really amazing instructors that on the surface, like they're just normal. But for me and the impact they made on my life and why I love teaching so much was profound. So the instructor wrote a book. So I'm, and he's like, we have to buy his book. I'm like, oh, whatever. I see how this works. It's a total scam. But in, in the book are a series of short stories that explain and build upon complex ideas from philosophy. It starts off with some basic things like fatalism. Like what is fatalism, right? And it keeps building, building, building. And by the end of the semester, the question comes up, what well, does God exist? And he did it in such a brilliant way through storytelling. So in one of his stories, he wrote about this crazy world in it. We step back and we realized that's how most people describe heaven. And it was not any heaven you ever wanted. Like we love the idea of heaven, but when we actually see it played out the way it's described in our minds, it's a horrible place. Because basically this guy dies, walks through the door, and he sees everybody walking in a circle. And that's all they're doing. And this guy has a conversation with someone else. If I remember the details of the story correctly, it's like, what's going on? He goes, this is it. He goes, what do you mean this is it? This is how we all can live in harmony and not hurt each other and be happy. He goes, but we don't have free will anymore. It's like, well, when you have free will, you can hurt people. Right. You can do things that are selfish and you can do, you'll mess this place up. So get in line. And that's all people are doing. They're just walking in a circle. And that's how we exist forever. And he starts to explain it. Like I didn't do it justice, but these complex concepts he broke down in storytelling, he never told us what to think. We just read the story and then we'd have like a debate or discussion afterwards. And he asked all kinds of really big questions, which I just love. And I'd never had that kind of teacher before. Well, you know, you talk about story and the role that story has with learning. As a, I, like you, I have a love of teaching. I, my background is in learning and development in the corporate space. And that's what sticks. People remember stories. I know one of the things you're somewhat hesitant to share is a story that doesn't have something that's going to be relevant to the person who's that story is being shared with. And I, and I appreciate that because I think it's true that we, you know, we could tell all the greatest stories, but if they don't have a, a point, then why are you telling the story? And so I'm curious as somebody that, I mean, you could be described as a designer, as an entrepreneur, as a YouTuber, as an author. And as a teacher, which of these labels resonate with you the most at this point in your life? I think the one that resonates most is teacher-student. Got it. And I think they're the two sides of the same coin. If you want to be a better teacher, be a better student. If you want to be a better student, be a better teacher. They're really inextricably linked. And I find that there are a lot of people who are teachers who've forgotten that they're still students. And so the way that they teach how they listen to their own material and their connection with their students, it's non-existent at that point. And that's why we have the education system that we have today, Billy, right? That's why I can only name a handful of teachers throughout 12 years of study or whatever that really have made an impact on my life. Isn't it 
fascinating that the one that you do know, you don't remember the name, but they stand out for what they shared and how they shared it. And I think maybe maybe this conversation will spark you uh, trying to find them even more. But I love that, man. And I, I think you've highlighted something very important, which is the parallel between being a learner and being a teacher or being a student and being a teacher. The best way to learn is to teach. And fundamentally, when we when we have teaching in mind, we learn so much more deeply because we know we need to explain it to somebody else in a way that they'll understand, which forces us to really take our time to really make sure that we're prepared to be a more effective teacher. I'm curious about something that, you know, you're, as you've described yourself, you're a loud introvert. And as an introvert, I'm curious how that's helped you in your career. Cause we can look at all the reasons why maybe it's been challenging, but how has it served you? How has it helped you? Yeah, I think, and I don't know if this is true with many introverts or all introverts, but when you're afraid to talk to people, when you feel drained and, and exhausted talking to people, well, who are you going to talk to? I think you talk to yourself. And there's a fine line between psychosis and 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 <laughs> mindfulness, right? So we have right, to right, think right, about right. that. So my inner dialogue game is really strong. When I felt something, I have conversations with myself, like what's What's the trigger of this? Why are we feeling this? Is this a productive, helpful emotion to feel? And how do we want to proceed? How do we want to respond? So just being very calculating. Now, in the middle of a fight, you don't want to be sitting there thinking like, oh, how am I feeling about this person about to punch me? You need to react. And I've been in fist fights before. And I think this inner dialogue, this kind of mindfulness has now come to serve me really well. Also, there's an expression like when your mouth is moving, you can't be learning. So it's, mm. it's like, you got to just be quiet. So as, as the most quiet person in the room, I remember this throughout grade school, junior high, and my teachers would always like, oh, you're the teacher's pet. I'm like, I don't even know what that means, right? But I'm just sitting here listening. And whenever the teacher has a, a, a question, I'm like, is it this? Like reluctantly, is it that? I'm like, yeah. And it's like, even though I wasn't talking, I was really, really paying attention. And so I'm learning at, at a rate that's different than my classmates. So that's one thing. And I'm just paying attention more because I'm not talking. I become a better listener. Makes perfect sense. So your ability to have self-awareness, to be more self-observant, and your ability to listen and embrace what's being shared and learning has been a win for you. What would be your advice for somebody that maybe maybe they're introverted, maybe they're not as introverted? Because I think those are really important things to remember. What, what advice or tips would you suggest for anybody that maybe needs to work on being more self-observant? Because to me, one of the most important things we can all develop is understanding ourselves more, understanding, being able to listen to ourselves, being able to know ourselves and understand ourselves. So I guess part one is how do you do that? But then two, how do you then apply those findings to make meaningful changes to your life? I think we all could use a little practice from both. I'm not saying that one is superior to the other, where, whether introversion is better than extroversion. And I was just thinking about this. We need practice speaking, articulating, and and being a leader from time to time. And in the rest of the time, we need to be better at paying attention to what we're thinking, how we're feeling, how we want to respond, and how other people are feeling, thinking, and also being there for other people. So not dominating the conversation and sucking the oxygen out of the room. One of the things that I think impairs our ability to see things for the way they are is because we bring in so much bias into every situation. The lens is never perfectly clear. And so one of the things I strive to do is to try to be an objective, neutral observer. 
not to just things that are happening externally, but things that are happening internally. And I'll give you an example. If somebody comes up and mentions something about your project that you'd even ask for, unsolicited advice, my favorite thing to get in the world, right? You're working on a film, you're working on a website, and some rando, it could be somebody you know, walks up to you and says, you know, that doesn't really work. And you, you know, those colors are just really not. And your first response is like, shut up. Who are you? Do you know how long I've worked on this? So you have the first emotional gut reaction and you shut down pretty much everything that comes to your brain. So at this point, all you're feeling is being attacked. And people who feel attacked want to fight back or they want to run away. Neither is good. Okay. So since I can control what the other person's going to say to me, I have to think, how do I want to process this? And so this is where you try to be the objective observer. And I make this metaphor for people, and I'm going to do this verbally so that people can understand what I'm saying, okay? And hopefully this works. So I look at it like your, your mind is a sacred place, and you have to be a better custodian, a, a door person or a bouncer, and control what you let in and what you bounce out, right? So this happens all the time. Like when you have a headache, they tell you just to put your fingers and rub your temple, right? And you just rub these two parts and it's acupressure and it relieves some of the pain. I don't know how it works. I don't care that it, it like how it works, but I just know it works. And so this is your temple and it's called the temple for a reason. And if you go to a temple, you speak in reverent tones, you wash your hands, you take off your shoes and you're more mindful in that space. And that's exactly how you should treat ideas that enter into these two pathways, your, your ears and sometimes your eyes. And we need to be more intentional in what we're listening to and what we're not. So when somebody walks over and says, you know, the colors are wrong or why'd you do this? Or that's a dumb idea. Okay. You step back and say, so what are they saying here? If I strip away, I guess the term is the violent communication, the judging part, what are they really saying? They're really saying, because they're really poor at giving feedback. They're saying something about this isn't working for me. That's all they're saying. Something about this isn't working for me and I need more information or I'm, I, I don't have the context. And so you have to say to yourself, is this the person I'm trying to attract? And will this comment actually help make this thing better in terms of achieving the purpose, not in terms of how I feel? So you got to be able to strip away all that stuff. And it takes a lot of work to be able to do that because the first thing you want to do is punch that person in the face. You want to shut it down. So even trolls, even people who are just overtly malicious and negative provide value to me. I'm trying to comb mm -hmm. through that. If they say this is just garbage, and there's no other clue there, then I'm like, okay, that's, there's nothing, I can't decipher that. I wish you wrote more. This is garbage because, or I hate this, and here's why, then I could do something with that. But otherwise, it's just, it's raw energy and emotion. That part I can just tune out. Well, you embrace the trolls as much as you embrace your fans in a sense. And to your credit, you don't do it in a defensive way. You do it in a, in a loving way. And I, I think, you know, Feedback's a funny thing because to your point, if we're not asking for feedback, if it's unsolicited, we have an allergic reaction to it. When I was at Tesla, somebody came. In fact, the reason I started this show Inside Out is because of David Rock. He himself is somebody that highlights a lot of the scientists and neuroscience behind insights and why we have them. And one of the things he talked about was creating a culture of feedback where People are asking for feedback and genuinely want feedback, which is so, so vital. And I think the thing that we have to be mindful of is if you're not asking for feedback, you're not prepared to take it in most cases, unless you've done the work like you've just described. And so businesses are served 
by creating a culture where people regularly ask for feedback. They really want it. And they're able to hear the feedback and then determine, is it the feedback that they want to implement or take? Because not all feedback is good feedback. Some people give feedback just to hear themselves talk and it's not, it's not good. It's not good feedback. As somebody that's been in the design space and the creative space and you're obviously having a very successful agency for years. It's one of the, the longest running single owner agencies in existence. What do you attribute the longevity of your success with Blind? And obviously now you have a, a whole new venture with Future, but why was Blind something that had the staying power and why has it survived so long in terms of longevity? I think the reason why Blind has been in existence for so long is because we have had to adapt so many different times. And I think tying it back to your first question, it's like I have this refugee culture mindset where I didn't tell you this, but we moved every year and a half. I calculated like how often we moved. And so there wasn't a time to like get really comfortable and put your, your roots down. Like I don't have childhood friends because every year and a half we'd move. I'm like, well, what happened? I don't know. We just moved. This is pre-TikTok, pre-Snapchat. So there's not really a lot of like convenient ways to, to keep in touch with your friends. <laughs> right. Right. So all my friends are all from in college. San Jose area. All in San Jose area. No, like first in Kansas City and then throughout right. San Jose. Yes. Many yeah, times. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And yeah. and so I'm just a person who's like, you know what? Change is coming. I'm ready. Let's move. Let's migrate to a new place. And maybe we have this more, when I say we, I mean, I, I have a more nomadic mindset. When the stream dries up, we got to go somewhere else. I'm not going to wait here for the water to come back. And when the herd moves, we just follow the herd and we keep migrating. And that's what happened. So when we first started out, I was doing a little bit of everything. I was doing web design, logo design, storyboarding, motion graphics, and we weren't good at any of it. We're okay <laughs> at all of it, but not really good. And so we decided like, you know what? fold all these other things away. Let's just focus on motion design. And then we would do that. And I was doing animated titles and end tags, but we got bored of that. So then I was like, can we do the full spot? Like, what, what do we need to do? What do we need to learn? So we started designing characters and designing worlds, fully animated spots, and then adding in live action tabletop photography and then doing full live action video. And then by the end of our whole cycle in the 20 plus years we're doing this, sometimes we shoot almost purely live action spots. And so that's a pretty big arc. So it's just our ability to keep adapting and changing and going where opportunity is. Now, towards the end of the, the company as a service design company, commercials and the demand for commercials, the, the budget and the creativity, I just felt like was gone. And there were so many people out there willing to do just about anything to get the work. And that's why we shifted again into doing brand strategy, returning back to my origin as, as a print designer and trying to understand how to do branding and brand design and building websites. So we just go wherever the opportunity is. Mm. Well, you got to be dynamic. You have to be able to embrace change, not resist it, not be rigid. And so it's interesting how you've come almost full circle in a sense to the point where you are today. So talk a little bit about like the formation of the future. What was the, I want to know, like, when did you first have this brainchild? And you said, okay, I want to do this because it's a big pivot to be really doing all the things you're doing with future. And, and I'm curious, what was the, what was that moment, that spark, that insight that happened when you first had this idea, this epiphany to start this new venture? Okay. I want to mention one really quick thing in tying to the previous question before I answer this. 
I was going to say my pain tolerance when it comes to business climate is very uh, sensitive. So what I mean is this, because usually when I have high pain tolerance, I have low pain tolerance when it comes to like business climate. Okay. When I feel like the winds are changing and that this industry is going in a direction I don't want it to go in or what we're doing is not where I want it to be, I start to pivot and it creates a lot of instability within my own company because they're like, Chris, aren't we successful and happy doing this? It's not going to last forever. I need to move. The writing's on the wall. There's no wall, Chris. There's no writing, right? Like I remember having this debate and argument with my one of my executive producers at the time. I said, the commercials are going away. He's like, no, it's not, Chris. No, it's not. And sure enough, I started to prepare a different ship going in a different direction. He stayed on the old ship. And then when things started to bottom out, he's like, oh my God. So I think <laughs> what holds people to where they're at is just the need to be consistent. They have so much attachment to their previous selves, their own history, the investment they've made into the industry that when things change, they can't see it. So I think for any entrepreneur listening to this, like you want to decrease your pain tolerance so that when the slightest change happens, when the herd moves, you feel it right away and you start to prepare. You start to make a plan for what's next, what follows this. So having said that, okay. I have one quick question because that's a really, really good point. I'm glad that you took a beat to mention that. What are you doing? Because if you have this, let's call it a sensitivity, enhanced sensitivity and a reduction in pain tolerance, which then allows you to be ready and be nimble enough to change, but you need to be able to, to read those and hear those winds of change coming. What do you feel has allowed you to be more sensitive and I guess ready to embrace, or I should say, have the more awareness of what might be happening? Because I think to your point, people do hold on. They are so attached, right? So whatever it may be, if I'm in podcasting, right? So I have a podcast agency. Let's face it. There's Clubhouse. There's all these different things. So it's like, how do I then determine or how does somebody in any other industry determine are those winds of change? Are they, how significant are they? And and what are you doing to, I guess, increase your sensitivity to make sure you're aware of those things. Yeah, good follow-up, Billy. So we we can stay here for as long as you want. The one thing (laughs) I have to caution people about is what looks like sensitivity to the change, the winds are changing versus shiny object syndrome. It can look very similar. The actions can be very similar. So you have to be very careful. So one thing is when you feel bored and when you feel like the hard work is too hard and you want to change and you're like, oh, I smell the winds of change coming. That's not winds of change. It's just you're in the dip. You're in the hard part of the thing before it gets really good. You're in that part of the story in the arc where everybody quits because it's just too hard to become a professional, to become an expert, to become an authority. I'll give you the example. 15 episodes into your podcast, the audience is not there. The sponsors are not calling. You can't get good guests. And you're like, you know, the winds of change. Podcast is over, man. It's something else. No, that's really you haven't put in the time. You haven't put in the road time, the repetitions to get good at this. And if you stick it out and you, you're committed, you'll do well. Okay, so that's, that's a different kind of thing because I don't want someone to misinterpret that. What I'm talking about is paying attention to culture, understanding trends and movements. Like when I was just listening to TED Radio Hour this morning before I, I jumped in the shower, and they're talking about like how this past year has made about 25% of their listeners who answered the survey rethink race relations in the United States among other things. And so there's a change happening here, Billy. Like we're being aware of police brutality, systemic racism, and inequities that exist between men, women, and other races. And we can no longer deny that this is not a thing. 
it is a thing and to the degree in which you agree to that, that's up to each person. But if you recognize that and you're in a business that's behaving in, I think, prehistoric ways, you might say, hey, we need to change because things are moving. Here's an example happening because of, is that Atlanta, the, the voter registration laws have changed. Companies like Coca-Cola and major airlines like Delta are saying, we're not in support of this, right? And they're taking a stance. Now, what people respond to is, oh, Coca-Cola, you've never stood for anything. Now you're like jumping on the bandwagon. And so I think this is a dangerous response. We want the corporations because they have the money and they're, they're going to make change happen much faster than an individual. When they actually wake up, we then punish them for saying, look, you're jumping on the bandwagon. You're doing culture washing. You're just purpose washing. You're just trying to cleanse your hands. But I think we need to be more open as a culture to say, you know what? Whenever you wake up, that's fine by me as long as you woke up. And I'm, I'm supporting that idea. And so we need to recognize those things. So when we're in television and I see my young employees no longer having cable or satellite dish or anything, they're just streaming yeah. content now. They're like, yeah. we, we've cut the cords. I'm like, shoot. Okay, if they're cutting the cords and this is the next generation that's striving consumption, they're no longer watching commercials. Wait a minute. You look around the room like, isn't that our business? If our business is to make commercials for people that are sponsored by advertisers, if the eyeballs aren't there anymore, we're going to be in trouble. And that's what I mean. Like you just pay attention to what's going on culturally. And if you wait too long, if you wait for it to happen, you've missed the boat entirely. You you the need boat. To, yeah. You just need to be like uh, way ahead of the curve and to survive. And that's, that's really a testament to you and that you're not so wedded to what has been, even if what has been has been super successful, winning awards and all of the different things that you can pat yourself on the back for, you got to just be realistic and honest with the fact that, hey, what's happened, what's gotten you here will not get you there in the future. And you just need to be ready for that pivot. Now to the pivot, speaking of, what was the moment? Do you recall the moment where you're like, okay, this is what I want to do next? and, And why did it happen? What was the thing that set you up for that moment? Yeah, there are a couple of like, like almost everything I do, there's a couple of failed attempts first. And I, I want to talk about that before I talk about the pivot, because maybe somebody's going through this and they're like, oh yeah, I failed and I failed. Okay, that's how it's done. It's not like it just, it's clear you take that path and it, it always works out. It doesn't. It's a couple of things. And around 2013-ish, 2012, there was this DSLR revolution that's going on when Canon introduced the 5D Mark II and for the first time as a content creator, you felt like, well, I could make something as good as what I see on high budget productions and I have it in the palm of my hands. So we formed this company within a company called Frame Society and we were encouraging other creators and filmmakers, animators to be part of this grassroots film club, AV club. And we would make videos, we'll call them films, uh, just to elevate them, but they're really, you know, they're videos. And we would have a screening, a film festival and we gather around. I was like, there's something really neat about community building. They would gather. There was no monetization. There was nothing there. And people who I haven't spoken to in a long time, people I never met, people that were on all sides of the fence, they came together to make something. I was like, there's something here. I don't know what it is just yet. And at that same time, I wanted to start teaching and doing workshops because I was tired of teaching for the man and I wanted to run it myself. And so I started this idea called Blind University BU. Like we help you be you, right? Mm -hmm. And then my friend, Jose Caballero, he came into my life and he saw what I was doing and he said, Chris, what's it going to take for you to stop with doing BU 
and come with me and join me in my efforts as the school. I'm like, okay, fine. You have experience doing this. I do not. And that's when I stopped doing this other idea. And we just kind of merged and created like a business entity together. And we did that for a couple of years. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for both of us because of our our mindset, our just everything could not be more different except for our love for teaching. And so we had dissolved. So in 2016, the future was formed. And that's pretty much like what is now the thing that occupies all of my time. Why did you feel when you made this shift originally, why did you feel you needed to make that shift at that point? What was the thing that kind of drove you the most internally? It was because I I didn't have a reason to work anymore. I've worked for a really long time. You know, since I was 22 years old, I've run my own company and I've had really great years. I have some lean years and one year where we went into the red, which wasn't great. And I had saved up enough money. I'm a pretty conservative person in terms of money. We own two buildings, own a beautiful house and had money saved up. So I was sitting there thinking, that's it. This is the American dream. I'm done. See ya. I'm going to sell the company <laughs> to my employees and I'm going to walk away from this. And I'm going to just sit on my boat and just, you know, do paintings or something like that. <laughs> and I found that towards the end of me working in the service industry business that I didn't have fun anymore. I don't want to do this. It's becoming a drag to show up to work. All the things that you pursue, the trivial pursuits, like doing a cooler project, a bigger brand, winning an award, being featured in a magazine or a book. I felt like I've crossed not all, but most of them off my list, but it didn't make me any happier. Now I was just looking for other things to cross off a list and it didn't make sense. I needed a calling, a purpose. And until I found education, it was just like, I'm just showing up so I could retire, so I can earn a little bit more money and then not work anymore. And I know this because I I watch people, like especially men who retire, their lifespan starts to decrease really quickly right after they retire because we just need to have some kind of purpose. And I was chatting with a, a man who's Japanese and he told me it's like in, in parts of Japan, there's no concept as retire. You just do what did you do until you're done. And they live really long time, like people in Okinawa, you know? Oh my, I know, right? That's it. So it's like, <laughs> so it's if, not, if you make it's sushi. It's not just the diet. It's not just the diet. It's partially diet, partially keep working, keep, keep doing working, something. Have a reason to wake up and you need that. So you went from feeling like you were done to then actually coming to a point where your mission is so big. You want to teach a billion people to make a living doing what they love without losing their soul. Yeah. So at what point did that come to you as your calling? Because I feel like you've had your career, you've had your business, and now you have your calling. And I'm curious, at what point did that crystallize? And why did it crystallize? Why is that so important? We were having a management meeting. It was me, Ben Burns, Matthew and Senior Greg, and a couple other people in the, in the room. And we're just, we're just trying to like figure out what the hell the future is. Because at this point, we're about to make this transition from being a service design company to being an education company. And everybody in this room, except for me, was from the service design side. Their whole lives were built to tr- and trained to do client work. And I'm telling them that this is an education company and I need their help. And they're just like, so... Are we selling courses? Are we trying to build a membership? What what are we? And they're pushing me back. And it's like, you know, you have a healthy work environment when all your employees can just challenge you on every single thing you say to a degree, right? And then it just pushed me back. And I said, you know, here's the thing, guys. I'm not in this to make money. And they're like, their eyes opened, widened. And and like, aren't we in that business? Because don't we need to make money? Like you might be okay, but we're not okay financially, right? 
And I said, I'm trying to do something that's fundamentally going to change education as we know it. And I know that sounds grandiose to you, but my goal is this. My goal is that, and I, I looked at Benny, I think his daughter was like two years old at that time, maybe a little older. I said to him, by the time that she's 18, if we've done our job well, she can choose to go to a private art school or she can choose to go and study under the future for one-tenth of the cost. And it'll, it'll have parity with what you learn. It's not a compromise. It's not, well, I'm going to get a little less if I do this. It'll be as good, if not better, at a tenth of the cost. And as soon as I said that, because I said, Ben, it's too late for my kids. My kids are too old. I'm not going to be able to achieve this in time. It's for your daughter. And he started to tear up. He's like, I understand now. I understand that this is not about money for you. Yeah, because I said, there's a lot of easier ways for me to make money. I promise you there are. That night I go home, I'm starting to think like, how do I condense that into something that they can understand that's repeatable, that's shareable? And the next morning I came into office, like the first draft was, I want to teach, not a billion yet, that I want to teach people how to make money, not a living, make money doing what they love without feeling gross. And Ben's like, I love it. But this is more than about making money. It's about making a life or making a living. So it started to evolve. So a couple iterations later, it becomes teach a billion people how to make a living doing what they love. So let's talk about that gross part because I think that's a yeah. really important distinction because it's really easy. The, not, it's not, not that it's really easy, but the first part makes, we all get that. And the second part though is so important. What does that mean to you? Love it if you could kind of just give us a little bit of your thought process because there's lots of ways to make money. But if you don't feel good about doing it, and if you're doing it in an evil or wrong or gross yeah. way, as you described, then it's all for naught. Yeah, I, I think our audience is mostly creative people. And when you talk to creative people, designers, artists, videographers, filmmakers, about just the subject of money, as soon as the word money enters the equation, everybody's like, they reel. It's like their skin, they creep out, you know, and then their skin's crawling. It's like, uh, you're that guy. So I had to figure out like, how can we as a culture and as a community talk about the things that is probably going to have the biggest impact on our own livelihoods, our ability to take care of ourselves and the ones that we love, allow us to do better artwork and to potentially make a difference in the world? We have to learn how to play the business game. Mm. And so that's why I initially when I wrote to make money doing what you love without feeling gross is because the gross part had to be there because the word money was in it. And I'm all for brevity, so I'm like trying to reduce this down. So that's why I've changed it to make a living doing what you love because a living doesn't apply money. It means whatever it means to you. It allows you to define it differently. So for you to make a living could just be to support your family, take care of an elderly parent or pay down someone's debt or to have enough money or whatever it is so that you can have some freedom in your life to be relatively, by your standards, financially independent, whatever that means. Because at the end of the day, all the hard work, it should buy you freedom, freedom of choice, freedom of where you want to live, freedom with what kind of clients that you want to work for. And I, I think then people can understand like, okay, no, they're not going to argue against freedom because I don't know anybody that wants less of it. Totally. And I think as a creative myself and a, a knowing so many creatives, we often resist the money part. And also we are also allergic to the the gross part and the, yeah. and the losing part. So it's, it's really important that both, like you can't not teach the business part and you also can't, you can't afford to not be thoughtful of the avoiding the losing your soul part. I love that you do that. How does the mission inform the decisions that you make as an individual and that the business makes? Like 
does it something you bring up all the time? Is it something that's constantly top of mind? And then you make decisions based on that? Or how does it have a role in day-to-day actions and activities? I think my opinion and philosophy on this is evolving as we speak. Because sometimes I operate as this idealist rebel, where I say, if we build it, they will come and then I ignore the parts of the business. So I'm not being a good practitioner of the things that I try and teach people. And so let me explain what that means. So I would go into a management meeting saying, everybody, it's not about the money. It's about the number of people we can teach. All I want to do is focus on teaching. You guys figure out the rest. And then we would see like our revenue plateau or even dip from time to time. And then that would send alarm bells across the board because I was thinking if I just become a better teacher to the world, this will happen. It'll automatically happen. And last year with the pandemic and everything, I came to the realization that other people who are better marketers are going to have a greater impact on the world just because they know how to market better. Not because they know how to teach better, they just know how to reach more people. And that was not sitting well in my gut. That was me being an elitist and sticking my head in the sand saying, you know what, if people are not smart enough to realize that what we do is superior to their alternatives, then what am I going to do, right? I was just trying to like, I was going back into the introverted world where I'm like, I don't care. I'm just going to do my thing. And so this year, it's all been about being very smart and strategic about growing the company. Because what I do know as an entrepreneur is the more capital you have, the more ability you have to spend that money in ways that can further your mission. So if we made an additional $2 million this year, I would be able to hire a bigger team to onboard more teachers, develop a more streamlined work process, and to be able to expand our reach out into the universe and so that we're hitting more communities. It could also mean that we have more more programs that help people that are in developing countries have access to the content. I do like this idea that those that can should pay and those that that can't need it more. And so we got to make accommodations for them. Mm. Yeah, man, I you you got me at, you know, what you just said right there. That right there is is huge. If you think about the disparity between people who are just born into a place, it's no decision they make on their own. They're just born in a place. And it's everything from education to access to food and water to infrastructure, being, everything. Being able to travel. I mean, like literally, I, I mean, my business partner is in Pakistan and he can go to half the countries that I can go with his passport. He's been afforded a fraction of the things that I've been afforded just because he was born in one place and I was born in another place. And uh, yeah, I mean, we could go on, we could go on for this a long time. So what is the biggest challenge or obstacle getting in your way of achieving your mission? Like that's a, it's audacious, man. It's a big goal. So like, what do you see as the biggest thing that you need to overcome to get to that point? I need to get over what it means to sell ethically. Because I see a lot of ways, and it's talked about on the internet all the time, but I would consider unethical selling practices, creating demand, pressure, FOMO, overpromising, all these kinds of triggers, email tripwires, all these kinds of things that people use in order to get you to buy. And once you buy, you're kind of, you're off to kind of figure it out yourself. And so I'm trying to figure out a way that sits well within my own soul where I can say, people, I'd love for you to to buy this course or to join this community because I can help you then. But I'm trying to figure out how to do that without being like every other predatory advertiser that's out there. And that's a big struggle for me right now. And I can see people who have different business models who have one product, one product do three, four times in terms of revenue than us. And it's just, 
it kind of, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out, Billy. <laughs> I feel you, man. I want to be mindful of time. It looks like we're almost up at a time here. So I, I want to go into uh, one more. I, I literally have only scratched the surface, man. I, I'm so grateful for your time and everything that you've shared. And I'll, I'll just say this. I am a, a massive supporter of what you're doing and a huge fan of you and everything that you stand for. I have one final question. When it's all said and done and you're gone, what do you want to be known for? That's a really good question. And there's so many different ways that I can answer this, right? I want to make sure that when, when my, my two boys are adults and, and men, that they, they say like, dad created opportunity for us and he let us figure out who we are. He never told us what to do and we became who we wanted to be. And free of any emotional baggage that he dumped on us. I have this philosophy and it's not my own. It's like I've cobbled it from a couple of different sources that a lot of parents raise children to try to correct for their sins in the past. Like, oh, I never volunteered to be president of XYZ club. And Johnny or Mary, it's your turn. You need to be that. And so they're trying to live vicariously through their children, suffocating their own dreams and ambitions and supplanting them with their own. And I'm really like, I think about my own childhood and I am exactly who I'm supposed to be because A, I was a middle child, so I was ignored. And B, my parents worked just to like put put food on the table. And so they weren't around a lot. And when I was growing up, I felt a little sad for myself. But now that I'm older, I'm looking back on that. It's like they gave me the widest birth in terms of like if we're at, in the ocean, you know, it's like I, I can move anywhere, I can be anything. I don't have to like get rocked by the waves or the wakes that they make. I just get to be whoever I am. It's almost by design too, because my dad's philosophy is very much like that. He's very much a laissez-faire kind of guy. Like, don't hurt people. Take care of your family. Other than that, whatever you need to do, you do. And so there was a lot of room for making mistakes. And boy, I've had many mistakes, things that I, I wish I could take back, but they're all part of forming my character. And every mistake that I made points me back into the direction of doing the right thing. And so that's really important to me that my two kids, my, my sole responsibility, the two people that I love without question, unequivocally, unconditionally, I just want them to like to be able to move into the world and say, dad gave us every opportunity to figure out who we were. That's what I want to be known for. Yeah, I love that, man. And I, I'm sure Otto and Matthias will feel that way when it's all said and done. And you're a great role model, not only to them, but to thousands and millions of others you could find Chris, of course, on YouTube, on Clubhouse, go to thefuture.com, blind.com. Where else, Chris, would you suggest that they go? Obviously, all the social media profiles, but where else can they find you to learn more about you and your mission? Whatever your social platform or, or poison of choice is, you can find me. I'm pretty much on all of them. And you can find me at the Chris Doe, and Doe is spelled D O. I'm pretty active on most platforms. The only ones I'm not active on are Snap. I'm not active on TikTok, but otherwise, everywhere else you can find me. And hopefully I'm saying something that connects with you and I encourage you to engage with me there. I do my very best to respond to every comment that I get on every platform. Love it, man. I'll, I'll leave us with a quote from your book. It's better to regret what you have done than what you haven't. Paul Arden. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. 
You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.